1: Here are some songs I wrote for the radio station where I work, WNPR, and I think you're going to like them.
2: Give it to the robot. The robot will analyze the music and put it into the Crocify algorithm, which will determine where it shows up in the Crocify feed.
1: Okay, this first one is about one of our producers, Betsy Kaplan. Well, Betsy eats lunch at 10 like she'll never see food again. She likes sandwiches, apples, and some salmon she likes lollipops broccoli and some shredded wheat Uh, Betsy I sure do watch what you eat and then this one is about one of our producers Josh Nalea. we all have standing desks at work dual monitors too I don't Josh doesn't. And this one is for another producer. We call him Pants. Poop. And just so it's not all about people, here's another one.
2: Did you lose
1: your key card? See Caleb at the front desk. And then this one I think you're really going to like. Satellite dish. Satellite dish Works better than a sign to tell you We're in radio Satellite dish
2: Look, Ms. Songwriter, how about if I give you 48 cents and we call it square?
1: 48 cents? But i poured my heart and soul into these songs.
2: Okay, 53 cents. But I'm taking food out of my kids' mouths. Actually, that's something I do for fun. Take food away from children and make them cry.
1: You've got a deal. And now, the ballad of Max Hedrum, Colin McEnroe.
3: All right. So we have a pretty interesting story to tell you about the music industry today. And let me tell you why we're going to tell you that story. And for that matter, what that intro was about. So as you may have noticed, people bring this up with us, regular listeners, uh, all 12 of them, bring this up uh, with us all the time. That We know we often, when we're discussing something on the air... There's a song at the end of the segment that completely sums it up <clears throat> or, or is just right on the nose for what we're talking about. And some of this is that Wolfie's just really good at crawling around on various sites and just finding these songs. And sometimes we suggest ideas. But then an, a thing started to change about two or three years ago, which was that, well, like if let's say we were talking about Nate Silver, you know, we we could have tried to find some songs about data or statistics or probabilities, or elections. But instead, we found this.
4: Nate Silver, you are a genius man. You know what's going to happen before it even happens.
3: And so this kept happening all the time. I mean, like we would find, or Wolfie would find a song It was exactly what we were talking about. And then at some point she said, you know, it's like the same guy every time. There's like a guy who's just writing songs about everything. So, And some of you have noticed this, I think, too. So we're going to explain to you at the end of the show not only why a guy like that exists, but we're going to have you meet the guy. Uh, You're going to meet him at the end of the show. But but for this to make any sense to you, we have to explain – A whole bunch of things that have gone on in the music industry and how the music industry has changed because he's kind of trying to exploit a little, not exactly a loophole, but an aspect of the modern system. But to set all this up, we had to find somebody who really understands what's happened to recorded music. Uh, We found somebody, Courtney Harding, a music industry consultant and professor at NYU's Clive Davis Institute. She's the author of the book, How We Listen, Essays and Conversation About Music and Technology. So, um, Courtney Harding, first of all, welcome to our show.
2: Great, thanks for having me.
3: And if you haven't just hung up, having heard everything that precedes, that's a good sign. You're prepared to continue with us. Um, so, you worked for Billboard for many years. You now consult for companies that are interested in music in the digital age. We know that things have changed a lot, and we probably don't have time to trace the entire arc of recorded music from I don't know. I mean, I'm 62. I grew up with when phonographs in the original age of phonographs. I know the, I know they've come back. Uh, Now, But things have changed. But maybe the consistent aspect to this has been that it's always device driven, right? There's always something people are listening to music on.
2: Yeah, I think that's correct. I think the, the thing that has always driven change in the music business and specifically how we consume music is the devices that we use. So we started with the record players, which you're right, there's been a comeback. We moved on to 8-tracks briefly, cassette tapes, CD players, and now we've moved on to digital consumption. And the digital consumption itself has taken several forms from the MP3, and now we're really switching over to streaming.
3: Right. So – and this has had a lot of different effects. But, I mean, you know, I suppose one of the watershed moments was Napster, the beginning of the file-sharing era, this kind of panicky moment for the recording industry where they looked around and said – wait a second, We somehow or other this has slipped out of our control. We can't even figure out who's listening to music that, we, that we're putting out. We don't know how to get compensated or how to compensate our artists. So they had to make some adjust, adjustments to not get beaten at that game. W- what were their adjustments?
2: Well, their adjustments uh, took a long time to make, so I think that's the first thing. Napster came out in, I think it was either 1999 or 2000 was when it really started getting big, and I was in college at the time, and it was... Possibly the single greatest thing that had ever happened to me. <laughs> uh, and it was tremendous to have all this music at my fingertips. The record labels took a long time and, and a lot of people would argue far too long, right? So there was a good couple year gap when they just were sort of stumbling around and they were suing people and they were suing downloaders and the, the bad press that came out of that was pretty damaging. They finally made the move with in partnership with Apple and some other services over to selling mp threes and that was a big fundamental shift and I think that took a lot of people away from Napster and actually you know made it so that they could actually buy music legally and and consume it on their devices on their on their computers and on their their iPods at the time. But there was still an audience that had been raised on this idea of, all you can consume music, and the idea that you could just download anything you want, try anything you want, and if you didn't like it, it wouldn't cost you anything. So then it took several more years, and then streaming finally launched. In the U.S., it was, I think, 2011 was when Spotify really happened, and there had been a few streaming services before that. But... You know, I think really now what we have is with streaming, yeah, you're paying a fee per month, but it's essentially all you can eat. You mm-hmm. can try things, you can, you know, listen to something once, decide you hate it, never listen to it again. It doesn't cost you anything to do that other than a few minutes of your time. And that's what finally has defeated a lot of file sharing is this idea that while you are paying, you're getting something out of it. I mean, there were problems with file sharing. I downloaded plenty of viruses and plenty of tracks that were supposed to be a Metallica song, but in fact turned out to be some guy in a in a basement somewhere. So what streaming has done is it's really solved a lot of the problems that Napster presented and it's fulfilled the audience's desire to listen to a lot of music risk-free.
3: Right. So, I mean, for people who don't do this – um, I pay ten dollars a month to a company called Tidal. There's, you know, there's Spotify. There's lots of streaming services now. Uh, and for ten dollars a month, as you say, it's all I can eat. It doesn't make any difference if I use it for ten hours a week, or a hundred hours uh, a month, or a thousand uh, hours a month. It's still ten dollars a month uh, that I pay. That that doesn't change. Uh, I can find just about anything I want. Um, and so I'm using the work of you know dozens and dozens of musical artists per month. But the ten dollar payment doesn't change. So right away you can sort of look at, at a question of, uh, of scale there. But also when you look down the line or up the line at the artists, you can see that their world is changing too. Courtney. So to me, one of the watershed moments of 2016 came in March when Rihanna uh, set a record uh, by having a number one album with the fewest units moved ever. Um, we'll hear a little bit uh, from that album right now. So that's the number one album uh, in the country uh, in March. We could debate whether that's a good thing or not. But uh, she had 54,000 uh, units moved, But that account- that counted streams. If you counted only true album sales, she had 17,000 for the number one album of the week in the biggest music market in the world. You know, and Adele still breaks records, and you know, will sell like a million albums in a week or something like that. But but in in some ways, Rihanna, although she was setting a record. She was a little bit more typical of the industry these days than Adele is, right? The the big, big blockbuster is getting more and more rare, and artists are having to content themselves with many, many fewer units of sales, even if they're big stars.
2: Right. So Adele and and I would argue someone like Taylor Swift also are extreme outliers in this situation. Uh, I think Rihanna is more typical. Now, the notion that physical retail is moving less and less. I mean, every year I was at Billboard and I was at Billboard from 2007 to 2011. Every single year we would hit a new record of lowest number one, lowest number one, lowest number one. And I think every single year you've seen that. You know, I think it's just a shift away from physical retail. And aside from these outlier records of Adele and Taylor Swift, where they have much older audiences as well. I think Rihanna, even though she's a big pop star, her audience skews a little younger than someone like an Adele or a Taylor Swift. Um, you definitely see this this real decline in physical retail. And I think the other thing that you've seen is a real, you know, increase in streaming usage and streaming membership and in streaming revenue to the label. So I think 2016 really was the year that we hit this tipping point where we finally really have started to move away from physical for almost every artist and streaming has now become the accepted norm.
3: Now the, the, first, the we have a lot of questions I think about uh, who if anybody can make any money from this. But let's start with these streaming services. So I'm paying Tidal 10 bucks, I could be paying Spotify 10 bucks. I could be pay, pay, paying a lot of people whatever. But it's still a not not a lot of money to pay anybody and get as much music as I want. Um so how are the streaming services doing?
2: Be- the problem right now is there are too many streaming services. So, you know, Spotify, in terms of just raw numbers, is is the winner. They're the biggest, and then you have Apple Music underneath them, and then sort of on down. It, the The problem is the market is very fractured at this point. There are new streaming services launching all the time. Um, Pandora just launched their on-demand streaming uh, service, which is RDO, which is something that they bought a while ago. iHeartRadio has just launched one, and By themselves, all of these services are fine. They all offer what is essentially the same product, and the products are all fine. There's nothing wrong with any of the products, per se. The issue is because they can't compete on price, and they really can't compete on having different catalogs, because a few exclusives aside, everyone has 99% of the same catalog. People just sort of randomly pick them. They go with what they've been listening to the most, or they see a deal on Amazon while they're buying a pair of sneakers, and they think, okay, great, great, I'll do Amazon Music. But the thing is, none of these could scale, and... While it's okay for something like Apple or Amazon to use music as essentially a loss leader, I mean, that's always been Apple's strategy. Apple really never made money on iTunes. They made money on iPods, which were filled with music from iTunes. Um, What you get is you get this market that's just way too crowded. So I think what we're going to see, we've seen a little bit this year, I think we're going to continue to see it in the coming years, is this idea of consolidation. So eventually it'll shake out where you have two or three streaming services and people are using those and then everything else either gets rolled up into them or goes out of business and just kind of disappears.
3: If everybody who enjoyed music and wanted to have a lot of it digitally did pay somebody $10 a month, would it be different? In other words, like how much of this is also being drained off by the fact that there are still people who are getting music in some way that they shouldn't be getting music or getting, I guess that's a value judgment, getting music in some way that is you know considered pirating or file sharing?
2: Well, I don't even know that it's that so much. I think it's the value proposition of the streaming services and the fact that $10 a month is, for many people, more than they would ordinarily spend on music. So Nielsen put out a survey last year that the average American who was a music fan spent $150 on music per year, and half of that was going to concerts, going to festivals and live events. So you get $75 a year. Now Spotify costs $120 a year. So the math just doesn't work. So I think what you see is not so many people that are downloading off uh, torrent sites, but you see people that, you know, if they only like a few bands, they're very casual music fans, they'll just buy two or three CDs a year and they'll listen to the radio and that's fine for them. So, you know, I think something has to change where the streaming services somehow, Come up with different price points and different pricing models, so that you can get even more mainstream consumers to to buy in.
3: Now, you know one of the criticisms of um, the MP three era was that it 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 made people into uh, cherry pickers of music, so that instead of absorbing the totality you know, of the new Radiohead album, although they're a bad example because they have a whole different approach to this, but, you know, of some kind of concept album, okay, Lemonade, from beginning to end, you know, instead of doing that, they'd pay 99 cents each uh, or twenty nine for the three songs that they liked and then kind of walk away from it. But one argument that you've made, Courtney, is that artists, there's pressure on artists also to create a lot of songs, that Rihanna, instead of just having work, you know, be the reason that somebody pays nineteen bucks for the entire CD and then finds out the rest of the songs are not that good, that you kind of have to have a little bit more strength in your lineup.
2: Oh, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, what we saw with the MP3 era is now manifesting a hundredfold in the streaming era, where everything is playlist driven. People very rarely listen to full albums on streaming services. People are listening to playlists, whether it's their Spotify Discover playlist or, you know, the best 80s hip-hop workout playlist on whatever service you want. Like, playlists are what's driving music discovery and music listening these days. And, you know, that's a net benefit in my mind because it does push artists to put out better music and more music. Um, I remember in the 90s, and I won't name names, but there were a lot of artists who put out one great song and an album with, you know, one or two great songs and ten filler tracks. And if you wanted the two good songs, you you had to pay... $18.99 1899 for an album that was actually mostly pretty terrible. And if you tried to do that today, I think you would be savaged or just sort of forgotten. So I think it has pushed artists to put out more content and better content and also let them take a few more risks because if they put out one single and maybe it's a little edgy or a little different, it can disappear quickly and they can just put out another single very easily and, and that can pick up from there.
3: So uh, very quickly, this is like a whole separate show, I think, but you've done some work with virtual reality companies. I mean, one thing that the business is now learning is change or die, Uh, adapt or die, get ahead of these processes or get screwed by them. So one possible thing, I assume, is that virtual reality would mean that I could, you know, even start hanging out with Biggie and Tupac, even though that they're dead. I could, like, have some kind of experience that made me feel like I was in touch with musical artists that I cared about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's four things that uh, music can do in VR in the next year. The one is the rebirth of the music video. So that's taking, you know, we will remember a lot of iconic music videos, you know, Pearl Jam's Jeremy or Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun. Or there's some great hip hop videos that are just, you know, you're in a hot tub and people are throwing money around and there's beautiful women Mm -hmm. and allow people to be even more immersed in those. So I think that's one thing. Um, I think the live music experience is another, and I think that's going to only add to the money that artists can make on live shows. I don't think that virtual reality will ever replace going to a live concert. The third thing you can do is, is more immersive, just storytelling. So, you know, artists don't have to just make music videos. They can tell stories. They can take people to their hometowns or their communities. Or, you know, you go to Chicago with Chance the Rapper virtually, and he's showing you where he grew up. That's an incredible experience. Or you take an essay that an artist has written about their life and make that into a virtual experience. I think that's fascinating. And I think, yeah, there's also monetization. So I have all these great high-minded ideas about how VR can, you know, tell great stories and change people's lives. But, you know, if somebody was, like, go shopping in Beyonce's shoe closet for a day, man, I would 100% just be in that all the time and probably spend all my money. But that's another revenue stream for artists. It's a way for them to get closer to their fans, to do more interesting things. And there's a lot of really cool VR companies out there right now that are experimenting and iterating and doing really clever, compelling, interesting things. Um, There's one I've worked with a little bit called Moth & Flame that's done some really cool immersive experiences. Oculus is certainly funding some immersive experiences. So I definitely think that VR is going to be huge in 2017 and definitely really great for the music industry.
3: All right. I'm probably going to skip all that. I'm too old for that. I don't want to hang out with the weekend. Uh, all right. So um, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to add one voice to the conversation and tell you how other artists are affected by all this.
4: Just get ready for work, 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 it's me, I'll be work. me, work, 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 work. me, do me. Do me.
3: I just want to say that although we are brilliant here at planning things, we did not plan that Radiohead would be the bed for the you know, break you just heard. Uh, anyway, uh, Courtney Harding uh, is a music industry consultant, professor at NYU's Clive Davis Institute, and the author of How We Listen, Essays and Conversations About Music and Technology. We're going to add to the conversation Paris Marx, writer and advocate for social equality. Uh, he's the author of A Music Industry for the, uh, for the 99% Streaming Services, artist exploitation, and the indie future of music. So um, Paris Marks, uh, Courtney Harding, and I have been talking about kind of how we got to where we are and, and what uh, streaming services are like. Um, but obviously one of the questions that we have, even as Courtney and some of the people that she's working with make it possible for us to do some virtual reality shoe shopping in Beyonce's closet, Beyonce's is kind of the one of the one-percenters of the music business. One of the questions I have is, I don't know. Like, I, you know, using Tidal, I happened to discover a guy named Riley Walker, who is kind of an acid folk kind of guy. And I really like him a lot. But uh, but how is he doing? If I'm paying 10 bucks to Tidal and he's one of, you know, 80 artists I'm listening to um, is how is he doing in this world of streaming services?
0: Um, well, thanks for having me. The reality is he's probably not doing very well. <laughs> um, a lot of smaller artists have never really made much money from recorded music. And that is not going to change with streaming services. Um, it would really depend on whether or not he's an independent artist or whether he's signed to a label. If he's signed to a label, he's really not seeing much of that money at all. Um, but if he's independent, he might be getting a little bit more. But even still, you know, recorded music is not where much of uh, the money that small artists are making will be coming from.
3: Is there an upside for my friend Riley Walker? Is there a way in which Spotify and, and, and Tidal and some of these other streaming services can, can help an artist like that?
0: Uh, yeah, I think I think the main benefit is that streaming services make it easier for people to find smaller artists, especially with some of the uh, like discovery playlists that Spotify has been making and some of the other streaming services. So they do benefit from the possibility of increased exposure. Um, and that would be the main benefit to them, yeah.
3: Courtney, let me ask you about this, because he just mentioned something that I wondered about, too. So, you know, years and years and years ago, like in the 1980s, I was a rock critic. I was this really terrible rock critic. But I would get visited by what were called A&R guys from albums who would try to get me interested in some obscure band called U2. You know, really, these guys are going to be good. And and I, I, I'm wondering, like, I think on most of these services, as Paris is suggesting, you know, there are, like, Tidal has, like, I don't know, they have some coffee pot thing, you know, where the best 15 songs of the week that they want you to pay attention to or, you know, and they and they put together playlists that are kind of ready made for you. I assume that within the industry, there's some jockeying around to try to get on those lists. It's got to be worth something to, to be featured by one of the, the streaming services. Do we know much about that, Courtney?
2: We do and we don't. So you're absolutely right in the being a featured on a playlist, you know, Spotify has, has Rap Caviar, there's an indie one that's really popular, uh, that that can be huge for an artist, um, or, or being on some tastemaker's playlist or something like that. So playlist placement is absolutely huge. Many of the streaming services have said publicly that their playlists are controlled by editorial departments. So those people have the editorial freedom to decide what goes on a playlist and what doesn't. Um, You know, again, if Drake puts out a new song, it's probably going to wind up on Rap Caviar, but they also have the freedom to pick smaller artists or artists that have maybe gotten bigger on smaller playlists. So there's an upside and a downside to that. The upside is it's, it's much more pure when, you know, it's people who know what they're talking about, people who are genre aficionados or subject area experts are making these playlists. Um, The downside is you, for labels, you can't pay for this stuff anymore. So in the record store era, if you walked into a Tower Records in any city, uh, you'd see a big display of new CDs of the week as you walked in. That wasn't free. Mm -hmm. Um, That cost a lot of money to be in what was called an end cap. And that was how a lot of artists, you know, got the word out, got their CDs out. Now that option has essentially disappeared. So it has leveled the playing field in a lot of ways. It's changed the playing field, and it has put, consolidated a lot of power in the hands of real, relatively few people who are controlling these playlists.
3: So I want to talk to both of you about one artist who at least appeared to a stage uh, a rebellion. This is an obscure uh, in- indie performer named Taylor Swift. Uh, let's hear a little of her. I
4: say i
3: All right, so Paris Marks, um, this uh, small independent artist, uh, Taylor Swift, uh, staged a rebellion, basically said she was pulling her uh, stuff off Spotify. What was that all about?
0: Um, so when she talked about pulling her music from Spotify and that streaming services don't pay enough to artists, um, she made an argument that one of the reasons she was doing this is that she wanted to fight for better payment for smaller artists. Um in, in my mind, that seemed really disingenuous because when she started making these statements, it was right around the same time that she annou- announced her 1989 album. Um, and because she pulled off her music from Spotify, then her fans couldn't actually gift or listen to her album in that way. So they were forced to purchase it, which meant that she got um, a lot of royalty upfront instead of, uh, you know, over the long term as they listened to it. Uh, the other thing is that if She is fighting for higher streaming premiums or royalties. It's artists like Taylor Swift, like Beyonce, who are going to see the real benefit from that, not smaller artists. Because the vast majority of those streaming royalties are going to go to the artists that get the most plays, which are these really big-name celebrity artists.
3: Courtney Harding, how did you see the Taylor Swift uprising?
2: I think pretty much the same way. You know, it was clearly a marketing ploy. Uh, Clearly, it, it worked. She sold a lot of albums. And I think, like, an artist can decide where they want their work to be, to appear, to be available. That's absolutely 100% their right. If an artist only wants to put out some crazy vinyl thing that you can only find under a full moon in Cleveland, which I'm sure Jack White is considered, um, you know, fine. That's, That's absolutely their right. I think what happens when you have bigger artists keeping their music off streaming is it has a net negative effect on smaller artists because there are a lot of Taylor Swift fans who probably would have come to a service like Spotify for the first time to listen to the Taylor album. They might have, you know, been curious, wanted to try it out and then they stay on Spotify, they sign up, they start discovering smaller artists they start listening to playlists and that has actually a very long-term positive effect um, so yeah I mean again artists have the right to distribute their music however they please but I do think it's it's a net negative when artists decide to keep it off streaming services
3: you know Paris marks that raises an interesting question and I may be I'm just guessing about this but you can you can tell me whether I'm guessing wrong it also strikes me that maybe the people who can suffer the most in a situation like this are kind of middle ground artists you know I'm assuming that Taylor Taylor Swift and Beyonce and and you know and Drake they're going to get rich they one way or another they're going to get rich because the players are going to play 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 you know and and that That for small, really small independent artists who maybe aren't signed to labels or aren't having labels take 70% of their royalties you know, they could really do pretty well for the reasons that Courtney's saying too, that I go uh, on Tidal or Spotify looking for you know, some big names and then I happen across some other people that I really like and maybe they even get to keep a little bit more of their money because they don't have a deal with a label but maybe it's that middle ground act that does have a label deal will get a little bit more attention on some of these streaming services but not in a way that allows them to to pocket a substantial amount of the royalties.
0: Yeah, I think that's certainly accurate. Um, where they are already signed to a label, they're not good at getting uh, a big percentage of those royalties. Um, they're also getting far fewer streams than any of the the bigger artists like Taylor Swift uh, would if she had her music on Spotify. Um The other thing, too, is these artists get a lot less attention from a label, so a label will put a lot of resources behind a Lady Gaga album or something like that, but they won't put it behind uh, one of these smaller albums that haven't necessarily proven they can uh, sell big numbers yet. Um, The other thing, too, is these artists will be much more likely to have signed a 360 deal, which basically means that instead of just um, signing over uh, rights to their recorded music and the label getting a piece of the recorded music, they also get a piece of touring, merchandise, licensing, and other areas um, that used to be primarily the artist's income.
3: So, Courtney... I mean, artists, as you have said before, artists have gotten a lot more creative, you know, about how they market what they do. I'm a big fan of an artist named Jill Solbule who's been here in our studios. And, you know, she's raised money through Kickstarter and crowdfunding for albums. She does house concerts. I happened to go to one of those at the house concerts. She was selling in this creatively packaged thing, uh, a thumb drive, basically, that had everything she'd ever recorded in her life on it. You know, and, and you know, so they're doing stuff like that and they're they're touring... And, and promoting themselves in much more creative ways because they have to. What do labels do at this point? Like, Courtney Harding, why – if I were an artist and I was were talented and wanted to be popular, why would I sign with a label? What would I get out of it?
2: Oh uh, Why are record labels? Um, I think record labels still do a lot for certain types of artists. So if you are – if you want to be a pop star or a hip-hop star or a rock star – Signing with a big label is a good move for you, assuming you have a good lawyer that can help you get a decent contract. Because the label will give you a lot of resources up front. They will help you get a famous person to do a guest verse or write a song for you or play guitar on your album. They will market you to radio, they will run a marketing campaign for you, they have an in-house publicity team. So the labels depending on what your goals are can be very helpful they provide an infrastructure that is otherwise very difficult for a solo artist or a band to pull off they they're still big and you know for more independent artists being signed to a merge a matador a sub pop you know that puts you in a class of pretty elite artists and again they have an infrastructure of distribution and and uh, publicity and and they will provide you with certain services if you know but again it's not for everyone and there's plenty of artists who just do everything on their own they hire and outs- they outsource to publicists they outsource to distribution companies there's a, there's a way to do it where you absolutely can do it on your own it just depends on what your goals are
3: so paris marks are you uh, let's talk about the you know the people who maybe aren't being signed by big labels uh talented uh, groups or individual artists you know, who who are good at their craft. They write good songs. They perform them well. Do, do you think they have a fighting chance? I mean, are you hopeful uh, about how a smaller artist is going to be doing uh, with his or her or their recorded music in the next five years? Or does it seem like a shrinking pie?
0: Um, I would say I'm optimistic about independent artists and their future. I'm not so certain that That necessarily comes from recorded music Um, what we've been seeing from a lot of smaller artists is that they have no problem kind of using their music as a lost leader to try to attract fans and just kind of spread it as far as possible and then making their money back sure through some recorded music sales and through streaming and things but mainly through touring merchandise things like that Um, some really interesting uh, you know develops developments have been happening recently which Courtney mentioned um, and part of that is the use of crowdsour- or crowdsourcing, uh, things like Patreon, to get uh, their fans to contribute a specific amount of money each time they put out uh, a track or every month or something like that in order to find new ways of um, you know, making the money they need to be able to make their music and, and get by, um, but kind of changing the, the model for how that happens.
3: Yeah, and I think that's sort of a good thing too, in that it means that you should stay in touch with your fans. When you encounter your fans, you should have a good relationship with them. Don't be a jerk, uh, so that they'll care enough about you to do some of these things, uh, go some of these extra miles. Speaking of going extra miles, I want to thank both of you: Paris Marks, writer and advocate for social equality, and author of *A Music Industry for the Ninety-Nine Percent: Streaming Services, Artist Exploitation, and the Indie Future of Music*. Also, Courtney Harding, joining us from the NPR studios in New York, uh, music industry consultant. And professor at NYU's Clive Davis Institute, and the author of How We Listen Essays and Conversations about Music and Technology. And now we're going to take a break. When we come back, you're going to meet our mystery man.
1: After we do the first two parts of the show. That's when I come back and I let you know that a player's gonna be a player. And the show was produced by Josh Malaya. Mm-hmm. And when the engine is slowed down by its pistons, it benefited bigly from my assistance. And when the show needed raw emotion, the part of Bill Curry was played by Frank Ocean. Whether the topic is pigeons or pollen, back episodes are stored at WNPR.org slash collin. When the show is over, that merely frees us. To think about tomorrow, a show about Jesus. I get paid a little more if this song runs longer. So hey na 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 la ba 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 pronger.
3: All right. I wrote those lyrics, but I didn't I never expected them to be so beautifully realized by Guyon Wolf. So uh, and that's by way of leading into the conversation we're going to have now. I uh, kind of teased this at the top of the show that we do use music, recorded music on the show a lot. But, and we try to find, when I say we, it's usually Kion, um we try to find music that fits the topics that we're talking about. Um, and what we started to find, what Kyone started to find in recent years was it wasn't as though she had to f- sort of reach – For a concept like let's say we were doing a show about Amanda Knox, the Amanda Knox case, you know, you know, maybe in the past you would have, I don't know, like found the end of the innocence or something. Who who even does that? Is that Bruce Hornsby or the Eagles or something? Anyway, it doesn't matter, like, because we don't even have to do that anymore, because we kept finding, or she kept finding, that there were actual songs about things like that. Like, an actual song about Amanda Knox.
4: Oh, Amanda Knox is not guilty of killing anybody. Nobody that pretty could ever kill anybody. The Italians are just Trying to frame her, cause they hate her.
3: And so we also discovered, <coughs> gradually, that although these songs are sometimes uh, released under different noms de plume or noms de piano key. Uh, they were often by the same artist, and the art that artist is the man that you're about to hear from. We've been teasing you with this for the whole show. Matt Farley's joining us now. He's the guy who wrote the Amanda Knox song. He's the guy who wrote the Nate Silver song you heard at the top of the show. You're going to hear some other songs by him, including. Uh, A different kind of song as we get in here, the kind of song that maybe he takes a little bit more artistic pride in. Uh, But uh, on the other hand, he has uh, an amazingly fertile mind and a lot of energy, and he writes a lot of songs. So, uh, Matt Farley, it's so great to meet you at last after having played so much of your music on our show.
5: Excellent. Yeah, thank you so much for playing it, and I love that little song that uh, you did coming into the segment. That was just my style.
3: Right. Exactly. I think uh, Wolfie, who played that song uh, and wrote the music, uh, captured your style uh, a little bit. Anyway, um, so so explain how this works. First of all, I, like, how many songs do you write a day, or a month, or a year?
5: Um, my record in one day is is over a hundred, but um, <laughs> a more reasonable day is five to twenty, and um, I've. Over the last 10 years, I've done 18,000 songs.
3: That is completely amazing. And, and so um, there's sort of a way, a, a, a scale on which this works. In other words, we've been talking for the last 40 minutes or so about the digital music industry and kind of how artists either get paid or don't uh, get paid. You've kind of tried to find maybe a, a crack in the surface that you can get through. What's your whole strategy here? Uh, it's
5: just to write songs about topics that no one else is writing about. Um, none of them are going to be big hits, but um, as you can tell by that Amanda Knox song, I, I didn't put a, a heck of a lot of energy into it. I just kind of had fun with a few piano chords and some improvised lyrics. But when you're looking for a song about Amanda Knox, that's about as much as you can, you're can you going to hope for anyway, I think.
3: Yeah, we've never felt cheated. <laughs> uh, when we 've when we 've found your songs, so I mean just to give people some more examples because there is a, a kind of brilliance at work here in all this i mean there 's something. Funny about the, the that appeals to us uh, about the way that you approach this. So this is also a song that we have not, to the best of my knowledge, used. Although I wouldn't be surprised if we had. But so there was this kind of um, celebrated photo that was circulating around about a year ago of <clears throat> Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump uh, having killed some poor w- leopard or something like that, and they're standing there like you know the great white hunters, and I think they, one of them probably got a, its foot on the, his foot on the dead animal or something, and it was. You know, I don't know. It didn't make me feel good, and apparently didn't make Matt Farley feel good either. Uh, here's his song about that.
4: Oh, Donald Trump's sons, what are you doing? Why did you go to Africa to kill animals? Eric and Donald Jr., Donald Trump's kids. Don't you have better things to do than go to Africa and kill animals? La 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 la
3: la la so we didn't use that song, but that raises the question, Matt. who did use that song because I think we're one of your great markets, you know we actually are looking for that kind of song all the time who winds... is it are it radio shows or I mean who winds up using a song like that
5: just I think it's just people people accidentally find it on on Spotify, just regular people um and you know, I have so many songs that, you know, if each song is earning me a dollar a year, um, then I'm making $18,000, you know, off of work that I've already, you know, that I did as many as 10 years ago. So it's, um you know, it's really, it's almost a one-to-one ratio in terms of songs to listeners.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the... um. And and so I want to I'm fascinated to know the creative process here. So like you know, so there was the day where you wrote maybe eighty or a hundred songs in one day. But typically, as you say, maybe more like twenty songs a day. I mean, some people, t- having been tasked or having tasked themselves with that, would begin to feel as though they were slowly losing their minds. Um, I mean, how, how does it work for you? Do you sort of get up in the morning and say, hmm, well, maybe I'll write a song. Do you pick up the paper? Uh, and I guess nobody picks up the paper anymore. You get online and look at the news services and say, I think I'll write a song about this. Uh, well,
5: it's, I'm, I, I, each album is a theme. So it might be like, all right, I'm doing the food album right now. So I make a whole list of food that I haven't already done a song about. And then next morning I wake up and I'm I'm super excited and, and I feel... Um, I like challenge myself how many food how many food songs can you do in one day
3: Right so th- that's what is that literally what you're doing right now is it a food album
5: Uh no not right, right lately I've been doing custom songs people will just ask me to write songs as gifts for Christmas presents so I, was, I did a song about someone's cat uh, yesterday, which is really interesting
3: and fun. <laughs> See, now I want to hear that song, Matt, and you don't have it there to play for me. Um, so, well, I, First of all, we have to stop right now, have to pause right now and talk about that. So imagine that someone's listening right now and thinks, wait a minute, he would do that for a Christmas present that I might be able to give by Sunday of this week? I mean, uh, how, how does somebody find you to get you to do that?
5: Uh, they can call me on my personal phone number, 603-644-0048, which, uh, incidentally, I sing my phone number in lots of my songs, and <laughs> so I get phone calls daily from people who say, I just heard this number in a song, and I'm like, yep, that's me, and they're always shocked that I answer.
3: Tom Petty does that, too, and you're not the first one. <laughs> He
5: should, you know, he should be more available. I don't, I don't understand. Like they try to build an air of mystery around the artist, but frankly, we're all just people,
3: right? So um, sometimes I'm assuming, like I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Of this is a song that we did use. We were having a conversation uh, on our, our cultural roundtable show on Fridays uh, about Lena Dunham. Once again, Kyone Wolf thought, well, I could find a song that was about maybe. Lena Dunham's generation. But no, there's a Matt Farley song about Lena Dunham. Lena
4: Dunham, you're wonderfully talented. Lena Dunham, everybody loves you because you are so great. Lena Dunham, you're good friends with Judd Apatow. You say, hey, Judd Apatow. He says, hey, Lena, how you doing? Lena Dunham, you are a media darling. Everybody loves you
3: because you You know, were you just watching Girls on HBO one night and thought, I better write a song about Lena Dunham?
5: Uh, it's it's more like whenever someone gets into um, a public conscience, whatever the word is, um, uh, I'll just jot it down. Like, I see a news report or I read a review of one of her movies, and I say, well, I, I should add her to the list of celebrities. And then when I have 80 celebrities, then, then it's time to do that album.
3: The um, You know, Wolfie's making an interesting point to me, which is that, for the most part, you're pretty positive about people when you write a song about them. In other words, you know, I mean, some people might write kind of a snarky song uh, about Lena Dunham. Um, This is basically a song that, you know, in many ways recites the things about Lena Dunham that she's justifiably famous for. I mean, is that sort of a factor in your thinking that, I mean, there's something kind of funny about it, too. You could listen to that song a different way as, you know, somebody, you know, summing up all these things that make Lena Dunham kind of a a buzzy, temporarily popular person. But it seems like you're being pretty sincere. Uh yeah, well I I do like to do
5: it for, sort of from the point of view of a character who's kind of been brainwashed by um, celebrity culture, so uh, there's that. But uh, even, uh, unless, uh, basically, unless you're going to Africa to kill um, innocent animals, that right. would be pretty easy
3: on you, right? And that that song was from the heart too. It just was from the point of view of the animals, uh, not the killers. We should say that one of that first of all, you release this stuff under various different uh, guises and 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 different group names and artist names and stuff like that. But um, that you're also a serious musician. It's a a little bit like the Gregory Brothers, who we've also had on, you know, that, that they figured out all this funny stuff that they could do with videos, but they really, you know, wanted to be the Gregory Brothers. They wanted to do their stuff. We wanted just uh, wanted to play uh, at least one of your songs that you take a little bit more seriously. This is one called Sandy's Photo.
4: Sandy, if I could have you look at me that way. Forever and a day, I know that's a cliche for me to say, but hey, I wouldn't mind if I would find that i had a polaroid i could look at it whenever i was annoyed but there was no camera when the moment transpired and maybe that's better because i find i'm inspired by the desire to remember how you looked at me that night so tired and slightly displeased a little bit ill at ease but mostly smitten or so that's how it's written by me you were mostly smitten
3: so this wasn't this one isn't perfunctory, and it's not for laughs, and it's not minimalist. So is this you being the kind of artist that we've been talking about elsewhere on this show? the artist who wants his songs uh, up there on streaming services and kind of competing with other indie artists?
5: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I tried that for a long time, and i I, I feel that I wrote some really great songs, but um nobody nobody cared, but if I wrote a song about a pickled sandwich well <laughs> um it it would sell and it wouldn't even sell much but it would just, it would sell more than the the regular quote unquote you know straightforward songs
3: so uh, has that made you lose heart in in the serious part of your art or are you still going to try to do this stuff
5: uh no i you know i i find time for both of them and you know i've written two or 3000 quote unquote straightforward serious songs so i feel i've, I've done justice to that um inclination that i have and uh just because you write silly songs doesn't mean that you can't write serious songs to people are complex
3: so uh, i also don't know how this works works like we we estimate that we've probably paid you about twelve dollars um uh, over the years do you do you know did you know that i mean do you find out who's using using your songs or do you just get a check from somewhere
5: I have had a few people in Connecticut say that they heard me on the radio, which is cool, but other other than that, um, I just get you know I just get to check every month from all you know Spotify, iTunes, and uh, all the other companies
3: yeah, so uh, but you're not going to stop, right, because we have needs, you know um <laughs> you're not going to stop doing this, you're not going to just start writing songs for uh, ask you know some guy who can't ask somebody out to the prom this is another thing you do, right uh, if I can't ask my date to the prom, you write a song asking Amanda for me.
5: Yeah, I did five hundred different names. Uh, Will you go to the prom with me for the five hundred most common female names?
3: Actually, I want to ask Amanda Knox to the prom, so I could probably just use the other song uh, and and save myself a dollar. But uh, (laughs) well, listen, Matt, it's been great talking to you, and really, you more than you know, you have become an intrinsic part of our show. Uh, We're going to end with a song that we have used. I can't remember whether it was because we were interviewing Roz Chast or because we were doing the biography of Norman Rockwell, but either way, maybe we used it twice, who knows. Uh, anyway, thanks, Matt Farley, and here's one of his songs.
4: Because people in art classrooms think that they're too good for just a good old-fashioned picture. Oh, 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 oh. When all of the dust settles a couple centuries from now People will be looking at Picasso and Jackson Pollock And they'll say, why were all the hoity-toity art historians So crazy about this junk When Norman Rockwell was just making these wonderful, wonderful Pictures making these wonderful pictures. You don't have to be difficult to understand to be good. No, you don't need to be difficult to understand to be good.
1: This is the I wrote seven hundred six thousand. 848 songs, but at least I made 27.42 cents blues.